This is Cody Ray Miller, and you're listening to the Dude Fuel Podcast. I love to read books, and I very often like to challenge myself in the books that I'm reading. So often I'll pick up a book, and it will be a very challenging read. And uh, quite some time ago now, months ago, I picked up a book called An Atheism. Uh, A-N-A, theism, anatheism, anatheism. And um, I picked up this book because a friend had recommended it to me, and it's by Richard Kearney, or Richard Kearney, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And um, I thought that the premise was very intriguing because it was all about a return to God after God, and I've, you know, I'm very interested in in theology and, and in philosophy uh, and uh, in my own spiritual growth and, and my views have changed a lot over the years and so I thought it sounded like a very interesting concept of returning to God after actually having left God. How, how would one return to the concept of God um, if they had, you know, turned away? And I thought that was a really interesting question and it, it quickly became the most difficult book that I ever attempted to read. Previously it had been a biography of Fidel Castro called Fidel by Tad Soltz, uh, which I actually recommend. It, it really was a good read. It was, it was something of a trudge. But I felt that it elevated my reading level and I got some really good information. I got to learn about something that I was completely ignorant of. I didn't know anything about Fidel Castro's revolution in Cuba. And so I learned a lot there uh, and learned about a um, great historical figure. I use that that um, term not, not to um, say that everything that Fidel did or uh, was good, but certainly not all of it was bad either. But anyway, I use that simply to say he is a prominent, perhaps is a better word, historical figure. And I wanted to know more, more about him. So that was previously my most difficult read, but Anatheism or Anatheism by Richard Kearney definitely takes the cake. This book has been I mean, it hasn't just been a trudge because it's been so difficult for me to read. Um, it's one that I've had to put down and put down like for weeks at a time. And it's both difficult because of the academic rigor behind it. I can tell that this is not written for sort of a layperson, but it's at least written for the layperson, I suppose, who um, is, is very into... Um, the death of God theology and philosophy. Uh, there's a lot of foreign language in here, whether it's Latin or French, as he's quoting other authors and and things of that nature. And and so I like reading these things, though, because I feel that it helps to um, elevate me and pull me up to sort of a higher level. Well, all of that being said, and if you stuck with me through all of the the preamble there, I appreciate that. I'll get to a point. What I'm reading now as I'm coming to the end of the book has, has really, I think, made it worth it. Um, what he's talking about right now is how you have people who they want culture to be sacred. And that's all they want. They want everything to be sacred, everything spiritual, everything divine, or infused with a sense of mysticism and divinity. And then you have others who want the exact opposite. They want the secularization of society. And what they mean by that is they want to take God and religion and, and the divine and mysticism and spirituality completely out. They want to totally um, secularize society and the world and the way that people think and live. And the author of An Atheism is saying, you know, 
this is really quite strange, and uh, it's not the best solution either way. You suppose you have on the one hand somebody who says, I'll give you this as an example. Say you have somebody who says, I love eating, I love food. And we would all agree that food is important to our lives, and that food, eating food can be pleasurable, but it's, it's certainly necessary uh, for us to continue our existence, right? So you have one person who says, I love food, and so all I'm going to do is eat. I'm just going to eat and eat and eat and keep on eating food. I'm never going to stop. Now, in all seriousness, if someone actually did this, what would happen to them? If they just continually ate, they never stopped eating, they were constantly putting some, well, I mean, probably immediately their stomach would rupture, right? And they would probably die if you couldn't get them to stop eating, right? And if, certainly if you didn't get them uh, urgent care. And likewise, we look on the other hand. What about somebody who says, you know, food makes people uh, overweight. Food can lead to uh, certain diseases when we eat the wrong thing. So I'm going to totally shun or eschew uh, food entirely. I'm not going to eat. What would happen to that person? Right, that person would die as well, again, without emergent care. So you have on the one hand someone who says, I'm a food person, and on the other hand someone who says, I'm anti-food. And this is kind of, uh, I think, and this is my example, not, not Kearney's, but I think this is what is going on when we talk about the sacred and the secular butting heads. When you have people that only want to bring the sacred into our culture and into our society, then uh, Kearney does argue uh, on the backs of other, or I should say on the back of other philosophers, but utilizing the work of other philosophers, he argues that this becomes life-denying. At some point, if it goes if it goes far enough, and we begin to see religious fanaticism, we begin to see um, extremism, right? And th so this becomes life denying. Anybody who doesn't agree with your narrow view of what is sacred, uh, they become the enemy, and then you know wars uh, commence. And we've been seeing that for how many years now, right? So on the other hand, okay, if you only have secularization then the argument is that if everything becomes secular, there's nothing sacred, there's nothing mystical, there's nothing other, nothing divine, nothing distinct and separate and, and strange to us. But if we bring everything down and we try and make it secular, then life becomes so dull and boring and monotonous that who would want to live that way, right? Part of life is the curiosity of exploring and expanding and seeking and looking for new enlightenment and and looking for new uh, to gain new insight and if you totally secularize the world and, and the culture and everyone in it then everything is um, you know to a certain extent if it's not understood it's going to be mechanized it's going to be divided up and put into categories and we're going to try to understand it in a secular way and we deny the benefit that can be in thinking about um, sacred things and mystical things and spiritual things, things which transcend our everyday experience. So it's interesting to me and, and again I think this point if nothing else was worth my entire read here and it's you know, not a huge book about 180 pages uh, but boy it's been difficult to get through but this idea of balance you know it, it, it sounds so obvious, and yet so many people, um, they, I think they struggle and they, they end up off on the wings. They end, off, they end up 
over on the extremes. We are often pressured by our society to choose. Are you a sacred person or are you a secular person? Right? Are you a spiritual person? Right? Or non-spiritual? Are you a theist or an atheist? Right? And while those are, are valid terms in and of themselves and they can be utilized and used in a, in a broad sense to explain and to categorize and communicate meaning, they're also, I think, quite diff, you know, really, I shouldn't say difficult, they're dangerous. They could be quite dangerous terms because if we embrace them to the extent that we have to embrace one and deny the other, then we end up living in this falsely dichotomous world, right? A false dichotomy is when somebody says, uh, you have to choose A or B, and they ignore or deny the fact that there could be an option C, right? So, you know, do you like dogs or cats, right? Well, option C could be, I don't like either one, or option D could be, I like both of them, you know? Um, and so, when we live in this way, we set up a false dichotomy and we attempt to live within the false dichotomy. And here's the, the real danger of this. The biggest danger, I should say. You then begin to see the world in black and white terms. You begin to label good and evil, those who are on my side and those who are against me. And this is quite dangerous, I think, because even though you have things like, you know, Jesus in the New Testament talking about, you know, those who aren't uh, against us or, or those who aren't for us or against us or, you know, whatever was said there in the New Testament. Um, be careful not to put words in Jesus' mouth or misquote him. Um, but whatever was said there, you know, if you're not for me or against me, it's a, a, a common sentiment. That is, it simply doesn't have to be the case. I mean, don't we know this? Like some people love you. Some people hate you. Some people just don't care, right? There's certainly a third option. And then there's a spectrum of feeling as well between love and between hate. It's not just as simple as this or that. We see this with young children when they believe that there are good guys and bad guys. And we perpetuate this, unfortunately, in their cartoons and the other literature and things that are made for young people. We perpetuate this idea that there are good people and there are bad people. But there aren't just good people and bad people. Aren't we all a mixed bag? Can you name one person who has only done good their entire life? Okay, outside of somebody who might say, you know, Jesus or some other uh, God or God man, you know, somebody who is 100% human, <laughs> not, you know, infused with divinity at all. Can you name one person who has only done good their entire life? Of course not, right? But likewise, can you think of a person who has only done bad, only done evil their entire life? They've never uh, helped anyone. They've never sacrificed for anyone. They've never done anything good in their entire life. They're just pure evil. Really? Can you think of anyone who that really applies to? You know, I don't think that applies to anybody. Even the most, you know, e even the most controversial, well, this takes us full circle. Just, you know, go back to Fidel Castro. Right when I was reading his biography, and uh, and most reviewers say that this biography by Tad Saltz, which really only went up to Fidel's life about the mid 1980s, so I didn't get to hear about the latter part of his life. Most would agree, or most did agree, when I read the reviews, it's a very balanced book. It definitely shows the good and the bad, and I was very thankful for that. You know, Fidel Castro, he cared 
about people. There is just story after story of how you know he would bring clothes and food uh, to the the people who were suffering in the rural parts of Cuba, uh, visiting in, in the hospitals those who were sick, taking care of of widows and others who were, you know, sort of downtrodden and, and cast out from society. So, you know, he did good. But he also said that there would be free elections, and after he took power, there weren't free elections. He killed a lot of people, he put a lot of people in prison, and uh, if he didn't torture them directly, then he had that done. So what are we to make of Fidel Castro? Was he a good person or a bad person? And this is what's really interesting. People want to categorize. Like for real, you sit down with somebody and they're like, they tend to fall on one side or the other. They're like, Fidel Castro, he was a monster. Or they're like, Fidel Castro, he's misunderstood. He was, you know, a, a, a true revolutionary and, and, and a great man, right? <laughs> I called him a great man or a good man, you know. But is it is it really either one of those? I mean, let's be honest here, right? Is it really just one or the other? No, it's not. So when we um, not only live in and embrace the extremes, but when we begin to eradicate the middle ground and to eradicate alternative options to just two viewpoints in any situation, politically, socially, culturally, emotionally, I mean, whatever the case may be, we are not living in the fullness of our universe, I don't think. I don't think we're living in the fullness of the truth that is all around us. One struggle that I have, I was sharing uh, just recently with my wife, I have this struggle all the time when I'm trying to make decisions. I, um, I, in my personality type, okay, if you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality type, I strongly advocate this. If you don't know your Myers-Briggs uh, type, go and check it out. It's amazing, um, amazing for me how accurate it is. But my Myers-Briggs type is an E, um, sorry, an INFP. And so I make decisions uh, based on feeling. And that's true, I really do. I make decisions based on feeling. But because of experiences that I had uh, pretty early on in my life, I have brought in a sort of thinking, critical, um, you know, judging, not judgmental, but judging sort of critical thought, you know, really engaging my mind to make decisions as well. And this often leads to great inner conflict for me because there will be times that, you know, my feelings will say, hey, you know, this is the way to go. This is what we should do. And then my mind says, eh, hold on a minute. And I have this inner conflict um, between my mind and my heart, between my feelings and, and my thoughts. And for the longest time, I'd say even now, if I'm being honest, I have really disliked this. But the more that I come to understand what Richard Kearney is saying here in An Atheism about the sacred and the secular, uh, sacred, <laughs> try that again, the sacred and the secular and their sort of war with each other, the war that doesn't have to exist, the more I understand I am thankful for the conflict between my thoughts and my feelings. Imagine if you were a person only driven by your feelings. Well, that, that, that would be pretty dangerous, right? Yeah, I'd probably end up being the person who eats all the time, <laughs> going back to that example. But, you know, likewise, if we were just people who thought and we never felt, we would be robots. We wouldn't be humans if we only thought and critically analyzed 
we we would not be humans. You know, if you if you're a Star Trek fan, I won't pretend to be a huge Star Trek fan. I've watched very little, but this was the the whole thing that made Spock fun to watch. Spock was very fun to watch because you've got a human and you've got a Vulcan, right? You've got somebody who has this inner struggle consistently, and you were seeing it on the screen. You know, Spock was struggling with these two things. There was a sort of combat going on, the logical, and then there was the feeling, the emotional, the human aspect. We cannot deny, or we should not deny, either one of these. They are important and they serve a place. And so, look around you and see how many times we have two things that they seem to be in opposition so that we want to choose one or the other. But if you'll just take a moment to look at those things, I think what you'll find is that they complement each other as they meet in the middle ground. And yes, that middle ground might look like a battleground. I'm not even talking about compromise here, okay? I'm not talking about compromise. We're talking about true combat. We're talking about the sacred and the secular clashing, okay? Running into each other, hitting into each other, okay? Ramming each other, right? That is a real conflict, but the conflict is good. You see... I learned this many years ago as well. I learned it from a book called Thriving Through Ministry Conflict. I was in a ministry situation. I was working as an associate pastor and functioning largely as a youth pastor. And I had thought this. Most people, you know, I, I believe, feel this way. that They think conflict is bad. They think conflict is the enemy. But the book that I read said, no, conflict is your ally. And I thought that was really weird. And I, I'll be honest, it took me years to really understand what I think is being said there. Maybe I still misunderstand it, to be honest. But I think conflict is an ally because it exposes and because it's a great opportunity for discussion and for discovery. If we didn't ever have conflict, if everybody just lived their life in complete uh, you know, harmony and peace and unity, how would we ever grow? If there weren't people who came on TV and said things we disagreed with, how would we ever engage our our mind to think critically. Well, do I agree with that? Why do I agree or disagree with that? See, if we were never challenged in that way, what sort of life would we live? Not much of a human life at all, I, I will argue. So I think that's probably enough to chew on there. And uh, my voice is still a little bit, uh, my throat's still a little bit um, questionable. So I think I've got a bit of a cold going on right now. But but I, I hope that this message today, I, I appreciate you sticking sticking with me here. Um, I hope that it's been beneficial. And if it has, I hope you'll drop me a line and let me know, you know, if this spoke to you and resonated with you, because I think it's an important message. I think this might be one of the most important messages for our modern times, is that you don't have to go to one extreme or the other, but you can you can experience that combat in the middle ground and that conflict in combat, <coughs> pardon me, that conflict in combat can be a good thing. Well, anyway, I'm going to get out of here before my, my voice gives out on me. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, you know this podcast is dedicated to you and to your success. I thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Cody Ray Miller. I look forward to speaking with you again tomorrow. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>